Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Rory Scovel is a stand-up comedian, actor, and writer who came out of the Washington, D.C. comedy scene, and he's managed to incorporate the lessons of improvisation into his stand-up throughout his career. From comedy competitions to late-night TV sets to his latest effort, the comedy documentary Live Without Fear. Scovel also currently co-stars in the Apple TV series Physical Opposite Rose Byrne. His previous credits include creating and starring in the Comedy Central series Robbie, a Netflix comedy special, as well as appearances in the film I Feel Pretty, and sitcoms such as ABC's Modern Family and NBC's Superstore. In March of 2018, Rory decided to find out what would happen if he fully improvised an hour of stand-up for six straight nights at the Relapse Theater in Atlanta, the results of which can be seen in Live Without Fear. How does he do it? Scoville tells me, so let's get to it! Last things first, uh, Rory Scoville, uh, congratulations on uh, 2021 officially being named the Summer of Scoville. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That was always my, it was always my goal and my dream to get, uh, <laughs> to get 2021 post-pandemic uh, to be the summer. I really, I really became a butterfly. <laughs> did, did, you, <laughs> did you and Scott uh, intentionally, I know you filmed, uh, live without fear or live without fear uh Both, yeah back in 2018 did you intentionally hold on to it until physical came out on apple tv to no we our goal was to um take our time get it cut the way that we want you know scott did the directing and editing and uh and then uh, when we had it where we liked it, we had shown a few people, you know, you, that whole process of slowly getting some notes and see what can stay and what can go. And then when we had it in a place that we really liked it, we, we did a screening in Los Angeles. We did a screening in New York. Our goal was to try to do some film festivals, uh, festivals and try to do like, you know, your South by Southwest and like put it out and, and try to get a bunch of people watching it and maybe, you know, see what the interest is to, potentially sell it to a streamer or, or whoever might be interested. Um, and then when the pandemic hit and festivals went away, it, we kind of had to step back and be like, all right, what do we do with this thing that we have had, <laughs> you know, since, you know, we shot that in March of 2018. So, you know, now we're, we're going on a long time here of sitting on this thing we love. And uh, a lot of the material that was born in this documentary slash special kind of hybrid has become a big part of my act over the past three years. It's all material that I decided to really work on and, and figure out. I would say it's probably 80% of my current uh, hour. And so I've always been like, I really want this to come out before I shoot that hour. Um, just because chronologically it's, it makes so much more uh, sense. And also it's kind of cool to see the birth of the material. And then essentially what would kind of be the death of the material since I wouldn't, do it after that. Um, and so we just said, well, it's going to be 800 pound gorilla. We're going to work with them and just put it on YouTube and, you know, see, see what happens, you know? And, 
I'm kind of, I'm kind of happy about it. I feel like it's a convenient way for people to, to get to watch it and uh, do the super chat and, and experience it. And, and, you know, I, I really like it. So I hope that that's what people walk away with. <laughs> well, one of the things I've always appreciated and admired about you as a standup is that you sure you do traditional standup, but so often, and from the very first time I ever saw you, your standup is built on surprising the audience, whether it's straight improvising, like what you did for the special or coming out in a character, but it's so subtle of a character that people don't even know that you're doing a character. Yeah. I think the first time, uh, the first time I even, uh, knew who you were as a person slash comedian was I was reading the recaps of the Seattle stand-up comedy competition. <laughs> right. This must have been in the late aughts. This is, yeah, oh, oh, uh, 06. Yeah. And, uh, I was reading these recaps uh, to follow a friend of mine. I used to live in Seattle, so I have a history with it. But I had a friend who was in it, so I was reading. And all the recaps kept talking about these amazing things you were doing on stage. And I was like, the ball's on this guy. (laughs) In a competition to just go up there and just completely, like, be winging it in a competition. Where did did that... Yeah, I think... uh, I think it's a little bit of... uh, I, I, I... I appreciate that. I I think it's a a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. It comes from uh, early on when I started doing stand-up in uh, in Washington, D.C. You know, as you know, the the culture of it and how you get started, you know, you're you're kind of at these shows that, you know, if there's 20 people there, you're you're very fortunate. And so (laughs) that's where uh, I I was doing open mics and and stand-up. And for some reason, I couldn't look past the fact that tonight's audience is not the same as last night's audience. I, I, I just couldn't see them as a different um, audience. And, and because, you know, it's DC. So that, that comedy scene is only so big, you know, a lot of the shows you were doing, you know, whenever you were getting up, it was a lot of the same comics were, were going to be there. Right. And I, I think I just felt this, this pressure. And like I said, I'm not saying this is necessarily a good thing, but I think I felt like I was being fraudulent if I repeated myself so specifically. I, I think I felt like uh, it, it, it doesn't feel like I'm here right now with this crowd. It just feels like I'm being very um, robotic. And the downside of that is you find yourself not really working on some jokes that probably could have had a longer shelf life or maybe could have gone in a more exploratory direction because you just performed it and then quickly passed it off and went to try to find new material. And when I first started doing stand-up, I was also taking improv classes. So I had this great influence of wanting to sort of take one thing from each of them and try to, and try to figure out what is this uh, middle ground. But it, I have to say it hasn't ever been this, this extreme conscious decision. I think it was just sort of out of fear that someone would come up to me and say, you told that joke the same way last night. <laughs> and even though that is what, what we are doing, um, <laughs> I couldn't look past someone accusing me of, of uh, doing that. So even if I told the same joke, I would make it a point to try to start it somewhere else or do something else in the middle and really just try to keep, you know, the punchline 
the same and, and sort of in the same space, but yeah, it was sort of born out of, out of fear, <laughs> which is ironic given the title of the, uh, the improvised special. <laughs> right. I know that you were in DC at the same time as folks like Aperna Nantrilla and yeah. Seton Smith. And that's right. Yeah. Did, there's a lot of creative people that came out of there. Did, did that, so many. did that help inspire you even more to just go off on tangents? Absolutely. I think uh, I, I got very fortunate when I started in 2004 in D.C. Um, there there were so many there. There are a lot of comics that started in that sort of 04 to 07 three year window that are working professionally to some degree in various forms of entertainment. A lot of it being stand up, but also as writers who don't necessarily do stand up as radio personalities and like so, so many, so many different areas of of entertainment because there was such a huge amount of talent uh, that started, it kind of made you, you step your game up. Um, Like in any field that you work in, if everyone around you is really good, you just naturally work harder and you try to keep up and you try to, you know, play at whatever that high bar is, you're always aiming for it. And so, yeah, I, I benefited greatly from the fact that I was surrounded by so many talented people because they would go on stage and destroy. And you had to go, well, how hard am I going to work so that I can go on and destroy or that so that I can follow someone uh, who just destroyed. Um, Yeah, it it was, it was a huge benefit to me. Now, when you were in DC, what kind of um, improv classes and groups were you learning and performing with? Because I know there's different philosophies, whether you're, Sure. Uh, doing games or whether you're doing long form or, you know, the UCB had this theory of like finding the unusual thing and heightening the right. game. What, what kind of stuff were you being kind of uh, indoctrinated into as an improviser? Yeah. When I, you know, it's so funny. I, I think back to college um, and I graduated in 03, but I'll never forget. I went to the library, which is where you access a computer, which is where you access the internet. <laughs> and I remember, um, you know, I, I, that generation I love, Z. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, truly that's our, I walked up hill both ways to school type <laughs> story, I guess. We didn't but have our uh, phones. No. Yeah. We didn't own our phones and we had to talk to each other and it was, it was great and miserable at the same time. Um, I, uh, I remember I, I was such a huge fan of the UCB sketch show on Comedy Central in high school. And then randomly in college, I was on the Internet <laughs> online and came across a video of, of them performing ASCAT. And I remember being so shocked because this is when accessing a video on the internet was not just a commonplace occurrence. I was actually baffled by what I was watching just technologically. But then also I was like, oh, I don't know what this is. Up until this point, I'd only ever seen Whose Line Is It Anyway, um, you know, short form games. And I was never, you know, drawn to that as much. Impressed by it, yeah, but not drawn to it. And then watching this this ASCAP performance, I was like, oh, that looks so fun. That looks like a playground for adults to just be children and and make something. And so when I moved to DC with the intent of of getting into stand up, my sister, I had looked into improv classes in Washington Improv Theater. They go by uh Wit. They they had classes starting I think 2 days after I moved there. Just it just happened to be starting. And so I took a foundations class 
with my friend Dave Johnson and just started to learn the basics of long form improv. And then I took a character's class from my buddy Topher Bellavia. And also while I was doing, while I was doing all that, I auditioned to be on one of the house teams and just happened to get placed on a house team that did short form improv. Um, and not, not really knowing, you know, even the terms short form and long form at the time, I was just ecstatic that I auditioned for something and was <laughs> given, given, you know, some sort of, uh, uh, attention. Um, so I did a lot of short form, which I think is very difficult. And when people can do it, it's amazing. It's not necessarily what interests me. And so, yeah, I was, I was on a short form team and then I started a long form team with, uh, the daily shows, uh, Juven Parang. And, uh, we started a group called Dr. Fantastic and we just put, you know, we just played for the laughs and, uh, it really, it, it, it really made me a better stand up. I really found my, my, this area of people not laughing is not necessarily a bad thing. And that's such a hard lesson to learn as a stand up, but you learn it very quickly as an improviser, um, because you don't even know if you have a funny joke to tell anyways, or a bad joke. So there's a lot of silence, even when you're doing well. Um, so yeah, I don't know specifically the philosophy. Um, but I will say whenever I have seen a group from Chicago, and I'm sure you probably feel the same way, it is bar none, the most impressive <laughs> improv I've ever seen in my life. The Chicago style of, of education, which is what UCB teaches is, is unreal. No, that's, that's my, that's my lingering memory from those old Del Close marathons was yeah because they had imp improv groups from around the world. And so you'd see all these different improv groups. And then as soon as the Chicago group got on, you're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. It was like the pro team came out and you're like, Oh, okay. They are very good. <laughs> right. Like the night, like the 1992 dream team basketball yeah to europe it's like oh they're all doing basketball but this is oh this is michael jordan <laughs> this is something else and... yeah well i stopped doing improv uh and committed more to stand-up after visiting chicago and seeing tj and dave dave wasn't there that night it was peter gross but the show was so um mind-blowingly good that i made a choice that i was going to commit more to stand-up than uh improv because i felt like i had seen the top of the mountain <laughs> with improv. And I was like, I don't know that I can climb this mountain. I don't know if this is meant for me. So it's Chicago improv while incredibly inspiring. <laughs> it's also very deterring. Now improvised standup is also a slightly different muscle from crowd work because some people might think, Oh, crowd work is just, you know, you're doing improv with the audience. Tell, yeah. me, tell me what the difference is for you when you're on stage. Yeah, so this, as people will see um, in the, the special, um, Live Without Fear, Live Without Fear, both, and you'll see when you see it that both titles are meant to be there. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, there is some crowd work for sure. Um, the crowd is such a big part of, um, of being able to work that muscle and, you know, sort of non-traditionally getting suggestions uh, from them. I, I, and, and I am in no way comparing myself, but you know, when you see Robin Williams, clips of Robin Williams, clearly just going a million miles an hour and just playing, but also sort of playing off the audience, but not really do, doing crowd work. I think I sort of set that in my mind as like the, the target. Like I, I, not that I'm going to hit that target because obviously he's, 
a legendary genius, but setting that target and going, well, let's try to go more in that direction uh, as far as like what the style of, of what I'm doing is more so than uh, just doing crowd work, which, you know, I also love, I mean, you know, when I go on stage at a comedy club, doing stand up and doing crowd work, I, I have a great time doing that because it is still improv. It's just that you sort of have a team. Now. You sort of are incorporating the audience as the other members of your, of your improv group in a way. But yeah, I, I would say, you know, going into this, I was like, I know I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm not doing anything someone hasn't done. As you and I both know, Reggie Watts does this uh, all the time. Because right. I remember when I told people I was doing this, they're like, well, people do this. I know. And I was like, yes, I know, but I'm doing it for me because I haven't really done this before. And I'm, I, my story is that I'm trying to do it. It's not that I'm inventing something because um, I want to see if I can do it. Um, but yeah, I, I specifically was like, try to be more uh, Robin Williams uh, style, I guess, which I don't know what that is other than, I, I actually, it honestly should be called Robin Williams uh, style. <laughs> Well, you know, early Robin Williams was also fueled by cocaine. And and 30-something, 30-something Rory Scovel is powered by golf. That's right. Yeah. Which is essentially the same drug. Um, Anyone. (laughs) Same pace. You're getting the same pace out of it. Um, Yeah. I, I wonder, I've never done cocaine. I, I am. Me neither. I'm just certain my heart would explode the moment I do it, even though everyone's like, that's not what would happen. I'm like, yeah, but you know what? I've seen enough dare videos to never try it. Exactly. <laughs> what, 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 how, how do you see golf tying into to your comedy? Um, do you? Do I you see it tying in at I, all, or is it a complete other, I, other I sort of do. I sort of do because I think comedy, at least, uh, I think comedy is such a, such a, it, because it's an art form, because you are performing art, because you are creating art and making art, um, you're an, you're an artist and you're doing comedy. And I think all of that is influenced by who you are and where you are in your life and how you are in your life. And I have been a very like, you know, uh, a lot of anxiety, you know, for all of us, uh, but, you know, tons of anxiety. And I, I go too quickly when I don't really need to. And uh, just playing a sport like golf has been difficult for me in the past because it's so, it, you are forced uh, to slow down. I compare it to like having uh, coffee or a cigar. You do, you do not get to decide the pace. You have to submit yourself <laughs> to what the pace of it is, because that's just the only way to, to enjoy those things. And so I think what you gain from golf is uh, that slower pace, because when you're on stage and you are even just performing your act is, as you know, there's so much rhythm to it and timing to it. There is also timing when you're making the show up completely. Um, and golf reminds you, you don't have to fly through this and you don't have to have people laughing every 30 seconds. I mean, the one thing I learned from doing those six shows in Atlanta is that also audiences don't necessarily always care if this, this comedy is actually funny you start to realize people just want something that's engaging and interesting. And I, I just never had seen stand up that way before. Whereas if I would just say something very vulnerable, that isn't necessarily funny, 
but because I am naturally a funny person, it can get there. It can get to a funny place, but I found audiences more interested if I said the thing that was uh, jarring or vulnerable or a secret that I never thought, you know, to tell anybody, you very quickly realize we all have the same secrets and we all have the same, you know, to a degree, the same fears and the same, you know, you pick any, any category. We all have those connections, but I think we get so nervous about perception. We don't put them out there. And I found that when you're improvising, you don't have enough time to make yourself the hero. You know, if you say something you really think, you might have to find out in real time that you're, you're maybe a bad guy about it. But it is a starting place and you can work with it and try to make it funny and just tell people your perspective. And I think audiences really respect that and really relate to it. It totally opened my mind to where I want my you know, subjects from in my comedy to, to come from. The, the other thing that, that I, or one other thing that I appreciate about golf is that it forces me to embrace my imperfections. Because, yeah. Because no matter how good I get, even the best golfers in the world still get so frustrated trying to put that little ball in that little hole. Yeah. Because you can't be perfect. And that's what makes it, there's no, there's sort of no perfect, you know, golf round, you know, someone might have a great score, but at the end of the round, they won't say, well, every single shot was great. And every single putt was great. It is true. You really do have to move on. You have to move forward after you hit the bad shot. You can't reflect on it. And, you know, you just saying that is, is, uh, is also, you know, I'm in comparing the two, there is a world that's like that. You know, this special, these six shows I did in Atlanta, it wasn't a 100% amazing, amazingly entertaining thing start to finish every second because I didn't know what I was doing. But there would be times that if I said something that was uninteresting or not funny, you know, those are the moments your heart rate really starts to go because you're like, oh, the show is bad. And then as soon as your heart rate picks up, your brain shuts down. And now you can't even calculate how to get out of it or fix it in real time. And that's also a reflection of playing a sport like golf. As soon as you've hit a horrible tee shot, you can't sit there <laughs> thinking about that tee shot. You have no choice but to try to improve your situation with the next thing. And it's... It, it's funny that I'm just sort of having that as you say it, but it's absolutely the truth with, with this style of performing. Right. You have to let go of the last shot and just focus on, well, what's the next right shot. Right. Yeah. And, and also you can't get disengaged. If you get down, you know, there's times when you get down, even in a stand-up show where I've written the whole hour, you know, there's moments there. Any comic will tell you where something wasn't funny that you thought would be funny. And now you start performing very fast because you're like, well, I have to get back on the rhythm I was on. And then your show becomes even worse. And you can't understand it because they are jokes that have proven themselves time and time again. You're almost like, I don't understand why that didn't work. And it's just like, it just wasn't the rhythm with the crowd, but you obsessed over the moment you got off the track. You couldn't get yourself back right. uh, on track. Yeah. Either you just pulled the putt or you misread the green. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. Um, well, I guess that might be a reason. Well, one of the key reasons why a lot of standups, when they do film, even a traditional special, will film multiple shows because they're like, well, I know it's not going to be perfect, 
but I can take the perfect things from each night. Totally. Each, yeah. So. Wearing the same outfits and trying to like, you know, the secret of, uh, of editing it all in there. It's uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think most comics would also tell you that they, their best show is not the one that ends up being uh, the special. And, you know, you and I have been around this stand-up game long enough to know that sometimes the process of figuring out an hour is wildly more entertaining and more organic and true to how good a performer really is more so than what becomes the finalized cemented script. You know, that is still very good. And also it is a huge benefit to everyone's career, but I I've had fans of mine who say they, they would rather see me and what I do when I'm trying to struggle through that hour than when I know what that hour actually is going to be. And I, I, I think that's why I did this documentary because I, I agree with them. I, I think it's my favorite too. So did you have to have uh, more conversations with Scott about including more of your stand-up in it? Because I know there's quite a bit that's also about Bob and the relapse theater. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of, when we shot it, we, uh, I, the, the backstory is that I had booked these six shows because I've always wanted to try this. And I did it at relapse because I know Bob and I know the Atlanta crowd and, and I know that theater and they're just so supportive that I thought, well, why not, take this big risk in a place that's the most supportive and also fully has a, you know, has an amazing improv scene and has an amazing comedy scene and would fully grasp like, Oh, this guy's making it all up. So if he completely bombs, there's this level of forgiveness, like, Oh, he's trying something. And then I told Jay Larson that I was going to do this. And Jay was like, well, you have to film that. That's, that's a documentary. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God. So I asked Scott, if he would be interested in taking this on. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's go do it. And then Abso, Dave Nebone at Abso was, you know, confident enough to just throw us enough money to, 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 to pay for the equipment and pay for the services and, and, and everything that we went down there just knowing, Hey, we're going to shoot these six shows, but we don't really know what else there is. And I've always known Bob's story about that theater. And I had just told Scott, I was like, you know, whether you ever use it or not, you, you remember when, when Scott was doing Modern Comedian, right, I had always told series, him, yeah. yeah, and I had told him, I was like, look, Bob's story is an episode of Modern Comedian. It's, it's very interesting. And so one afternoon, Scott just went and interviewed uh, Bob about the theater. I wasn't even there. And then he came home, he came back to the apartment we were staying at, and he said, I found the other half of what this is now. He was like, it all makes sense to me now. We found it in real time. We didn't force it. It wasn't fabricated. You're up there doing the thing you do the way you do it. And Bob is doing, you know, the thing that he does the way he does it. And it is in, you need each other and it's in the same world. He is living without fear. You are trying to do something live without fear. And, uh, and it, it, we were just like, there is uh, the whole story. And then when Scott started cutting it together, I think he just very naturally found it to be, here is you know, some of the stand-up and then more of the stand-up and then a big section of the stand-up. And then here is some of Bob's story. And it, I think he just kind of found what the rhythm of it was to go back and forth. Um, but it was always our goal to get a lot of the stand-up in there. And then a lot of me talking about what I was learning uh, at the same time. I, I love that, uh, that he or the both of you included you talking about Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. I, I talk about that one specific scene all the time because it Perfect. is because 
Well, because when it, when people talk about faith or, the, or religion, I go, well, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there's a literal leap of faith. Yes, yes. Indiana, Indiana Jones actually doesn't believe in God. Right. It's his dad who does. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, I hope I hope that's ruined the movie for somebody. They're like, <laughs> I was just getting to it. <laughs> it was my next movie. <laughs> But as yeah, he, the way he lifts his leg and steps out there, I've I've thought about that since the moment I sat in the theater and watched that moment. I remember being a kid because I I think that I can't remember when that was, like maybe early '90s or something. 89. I was maybe like 89. So I was I was nine years old when I saw that moment, and I remember as a nine year old being like, well, "That's a weird way to <laughs> to like lift your leg, even if you are doing a leap of faith. Like, what a weird way." to do that <laughs> right you might more like inch your inch your feet out a little bit <laughs> yeah exactly and then when he like throws the dirt on it it's like maybe start there maybe start by throwing some of the dirt and be like oh there's the bridge all right so i am right with what i do believe <laughs> yeah uh but but doing you know doing what you do does require that that leap like you know just like just like with Indy, you know the audience is going to go with you, but you still have to take that leap. Yeah. And know that yeah. it's going to be there. You know, I have a lot of people that um, when I improvise some stuff in my stand-up, you know, when I'm doing uh, a normal set or an hour or whatever, uh, that sort of don't believe it. And I, I try to explain to people that, I've told people from the beginning, people have said since I started like, oh, his set is is different and he makes it up. And I tell them that's not the truth. I was like I, that, that I, I'm not going to fight that label because it makes people interested in buying tickets and I'll gladly take that. <laughs> but the truth is that, you know, when I'm doing open mics or just sets around town, I have the idea of a joke and I don't mind as many comics do, I don't mind talking it out on stage and figuring out and improvising it in the moment. And because I sort of write that way, because I'm not someone who can sit and write. So because I write on stage, that sort of tends to be how the joke gets performed. And so I think because it's born out of this very organic, non-written uh, style, when I perform it from that point on, it sort of gives the illusion like, oh, this is being made up. So I do tell people, I was like, all of the jokes you're, hit, you're hearing, 90% of them at least, did come out of an improvised moment. And that's why they maybe appear that way. But because I'm also, as we said in the beginning, diseased with this sort of like, I can't always do it the same way. A lot of the jokes I'm, I'm working on for like three to five years of like adding stuff and getting rid of stuff and changing it to make it interesting for me. And so it gives the impression, oh, every single show is is a little bit different. You know, the closer I get to shooting a special, the hour is, it, it's not different. All the tags are there, the rhythm's there, and I just sort of perform it uh, start to finish. But I think it's why I have an attraction to jam bands. I think it's why I like jazz. I like the fact that, uh, you know, a band like Fish doesn't ever do the same set list. And I'm not some huge, crazy Fish fan. But when I go see them live, I love that, you're sort of there in the moment with them knowing that they also kind of don't know what the show uh, is about to be. And because of that, I feel a connection to a band that I'm not even a huge fan of. And I feel that same way with, with jazz musicians. I'm, I'm connected to 
you know, uh, groups and musicians that I'm not obsessed with. And I don't know a lot of their work or who they are, but that, that the art, I'm connected to the art because it's so organic. Well, that is, that is the greatest magic trick of all, that uh, you go to a, prof- a professional stand-up show and it seems completely in the moment. Exactly. Exactly. So, and the uh, greats, the legends. The legends are the ones that pull that off. And I mean someone who works as meticulously on the wording as someone like Jerry Seinfeld. It is still this magic trick that he just seems to be talking about it. And, you know, every stand-up knows, like, that is the better you can – if your jokes are good – they don't have to be great. If they're good, but your magic trick is really great, people think the jokes are great. It almost gives the credence to, you know, uh, a, a even maybe even a bad joke. But if it seems like you're just throwing it out there, people go with it. They, that's what they want. Well, Rory Scovel, you are a uh, quite the comedy magician. Uh, <laughs> so uh, thank you, thank you for sitting down with me. I know you have to go, uh, but I really appreciate it, and congratulations on all your success. I appreciate this so much. I love that we've known each other so long and constantly are reconnected in this world of uh, stand-up. It's, it's truly a very cool thing that maybe a lot of people don't realize in our community, this sort of like thread that you just keep sort of crossing paths. But I, I love to have it, and I, I'm grateful for you having me on. Thank you. Thanks, Roy. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.